0: Good morning and uh, welcome to botany life if you're visiting today uh, here at botany you should know we don't normally do this this little kind of seating arrangement with coffee tables and candles and stuff is not not the norm normally it's rows and that kind of boring stuff but we're just being a little bit different today so if uh, it's your first time visiting then then you're very welcome uh, i want to say kia ora everyone in hastings uh, watching this also if you're watching on the internet you probably can't see necessarily I don't know, Vincent, can you pan the camera a little bit round to show people what it looks like or not? There you go. So for you watching, we've kind of done little clusters of seats and coffee tables and candles and and that kind of thing. And it's it's because uh, what we're looking at today as we continue our series in 1 Peter is uh, living good lives together. And the idea that, uh, the whole idea through 1 Peter or the middle chunk of 1 Peter has been that it's about living life, uh, living good lives for the glory of God and we've looked as we've walked through this ancient letter that Peter wrote at what it means to live good lives uh, in the workplace and in our marriages and what that looks like as citizens under government and what that looks like just generally as people and the character that we have and all this kind of stuff and then last week we looked at that, that living good lives actually means consistently choosing not to live bad lives. Um, in terms of the holiness of character and just the difference that our life might be to to the party scene and, and everything else that happens in the world around us. And today we come in this ancient letter um, to basically the end of the middle piece of this letter. Um, so we're in 1 Peter chapter 4 verses 7 to 11. So if you've got a, a Bible with you or you've got um, an app on your phone, you want to follow along in, in these verses, that would be great. But verses 7 to 11 of First Peter 4 basically finish this whole section up. And what Peter wants to emphasize as we finish is that actually everything he said about living good lives for the glory of God um, isn't actually meant to be done by ourselves. That actually living good lives is meant to be done together. So my big idea today that I'm going to kind of come back to a few times is simply this, living good lives is not a solo sport. It's a team game. So living good lives, living out the Christian life, walking with God... It's not meant to be like you're a single athlete working hard to complete a marathon or jump further than you've ever jumped before or, or win that match alone. That, that's not what the Christian life is meant to be in terms of metaphor. It's much more about a team game where everyone is on the team and everyone's participating and everyone's playing their role and bringing their abilities and their gifts and working together as a team, which is why I'm wearing, of course, this cool jersey. I wouldn't ordinarily wear something like this, of course. Actually, I would. Um, But it was a good excuse to wear an all-black jersey because this is the big idea, that that living good lives, living the Christian life, glorifying God is actually meant to be done together because it's not a solo sport. It's a team game. And this big idea really brings out or draws out a number of our key values as a church, especially two of them. Um, One key value that we have as a church is that we are all in the game. Um, That actually it takes all of us to participate and the idea of the Christian life is not meant to be a few people kind of doing everything and everyone else sitting in the grandstands watching and cheering on. It's meant to be that we're all on the field and we're all playing the game um, together. And another key value that we have similarly is um, we do life together. That God's brought us together as a family and that means we're to love each other and support each other and care for each other and and do life as smaller groups, which is kind of what we're trying to do here in the way we've laid out um, the service. And so really what Peter's calling us to and reminding us is that living good lives for the glory of God is not actually about just working hard by ourselves. It's actually working together. It's doing life together. It's playing the game together because... Life and, and living for Jesus and living good lives is, is not a solo sport. That's what we meet meant to do all together in this team game. And that's what he's going to talk about in this passage in 1 Peter 4, verses 7 to 11. Now, the last couple of weeks in 1 Peter have been really hard. In fact, two weeks ago was like the most difficult passage in the whole New Testament. Um, but this one, this is real easy. Like This passage is so simple, it's just nice and clear and easy to walk through. There's a really simple intro and a nice conclusion, and there's these four, almost they are almost bullet points. It's almost like Peter's just going to bullet point his way through what it means to do life as a team sport. And so let's just walk through this together. So his introduction, if you've got it open in front of you there, is um, at the beginning of verse 7, just the first line. The end is near. Or actually, if you have a look at verse 7, if you've got the Bible there, the end of all things is near. That's basically where he begins it all. Now, why does he say that? It's because in the previous section that we looked at last week, he reminded everyone that the judgment of God is coming. He, He wrote this just a couple of verses back. He was talking about the lives that that his readers had used to live, most of them. They lived in debauchery and drunkenness and carousing, which means drunken parties, orgies. And he says, but now that's what you used to live in before you came to faith, and you don't live like that anymore. And so now the pagans around you, they're surprised that you don't join them in this kind of reckless lifestyle. Or or even more literally, the metaphor he has, they're surprised that you don't plunge with them into this kind of flood of, of, of reckless living. And so they heap abuse on you. And then Peter had said in verse 5, but they will have to give an account one day to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And he reminds his readers that even if they're being abused by people around them in the world, because they don't, they don't get plastered at the work do, and they don't go and get involved in some um, weird sexual kind of things, and, they, and they, they choose to live pure and clean lives, which is what the passage was about last week. If people heap abuse on you, Peter's saying, just hang in there. Because one day, those people are going to stand before the righteous judge of all the earth. And they're going to give an account. And that's what he's got in his mind, where he comes here, and he then writes, the end of all things is near. What he's saying is, this could happen any time. The judgment of God could happen. The heavens could open, and King Jesus could step back into this world at any moment. And sometimes we look at this whole idea of the return of Jesus and, and we think, good night, it's almost 2,000 years since Peter wrote that. And so we think of time as this long kind of uh, continuum and it's been 2,000 years and we read, you know, the end of all things is near. And we think, well, you know, it could be another 2,000 years. And, and it could be. Um, but in in the... The ancient mindset, the concept of time, with, or the return of Jesus, was not. It could happen somewhere along the timeline, and it could be ages away. It was more like it's a massive water balloon that's hanging over you, and at any moment that balloon could burst. And it's almost like you know, living like slightly hunched, thinking, "Good night. I could be inundated at any moment." That's the idea that that the ancients had about the return of Jesus. It's near. It could happen. But Jesus could come back right now. And he didn't. But he could have now. And he could come whenever. And it's the sense of living in light of the fact that Jesus could come back at any moment. One of the um, people I've, I've been reading through this series is a pastor called David Helm. And when he's, he when he talks about this part that, that Jesus could come back at any time, he um He recalls reading a book in high school, and he's older than me, so he was at high school, like, I think in the 60s or 70s. But he talks about the fact that when he was in high school at the height of the Cold War, there was real fear around nuclear war and all that kind of stuff between the Soviet Union and America. And he read this book that talked about um, imagining this massive nuclear um, all-out war, And he said, and the Northern Hemisphere in this book, the plot of the book is the Northern Hemisphere gets completely obliterated. Europe's wiped out, America's, North America's all wiped out, uh, Russia, Soviet Union's all wiped out. The Southern Hemisphere is still alive, you know, whoo! Except the problem is that the nuclear war has been so massive that nuclear fallout is just decimating the entire planet. And so while everyone in the Northern Hemisphere is wiped out instantaneously, in this book, everyone in the Southern Hemisphere is going to suffer a slow death of radiation. And the plot of the book is, what would you do if you knew that you had one year to live before that ultimately killed you? And it really got David Helm, when he was a high school student, really thinking about his life and the imminency of death and his own mortality. And in response to that, he wrote these words, I vividly remember wrestling with this idea of the world ending, my mind raced with questions. What would I do if I learned that all of history was drifting toward its end? What would you do? How does one live with the end? The very end is at hand. What would you do with the time you had left? Or to put it another way, imagine if, if this coming week you got called up by the doctor and told to come to the doctor's office and just those routine blood tests you'd done last time you were at the doctor's have come back with something they've only just picked up and it's this rare condition and there's no known cure and they give you 12 months. What would you do if you knew you had 12 months left? How would your life be different? How would you respond to that? What, what would you want to do with your life? See, sometimes we live as though there's this endless life ahead of us. We live as though we're immortal, when in fact we know we're not. We know one day we're going to die. We know the end is going to come. We know Jesus could come back at any moment or we're going to pass away. But we don't live like that until we're face to face with our mortality or face to face with the return of Jesus the end is near, he could come back how would we then live? and the truth of the matter is at that moment for most of us our selfish gene kicks in man if I've got a, you know uh, that kind of diagnosis from the doctor if I know, man, if I knew for sure Jesus was coming back next month what would I want to quickly do before he came back like I haven't seen the Eiffel Tower yet And for most of us, the selfish gene kicks in. Here's my bucket list. What Peter's arguing for is a community gene should kick in. Man, if Jesus could come back, if Jesus did come back in this next year, what should our lives look like as a church, as a community of faith? And Peter's much more concerned about how we would love each other and support each other and help us live good lives together than he is about your bucket list and what you'd like to do. But there's this sense of urgency that he's trying to bring in here to this story. What would you do if the end uh, is near? And then he does this basically bullet point list. He's going to run through four things. The first of them is in the rest of verse 7, and the idea is pray diligent. The rest of verse 7, if you've got it there in front of you, says, therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. The idea of being sober and alert is something that Peter will write about a few times. He's already used that concept back in, whoa, hello, back in chapter 1 as I find my way back to my, I don't know why it does that sometimes. One more, there we go. Back in uh, chapter 1, he said, you know, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought when Jesus comes back. And that's introducing a call to be holy. Over in chapter 5, we will be in a couple of weeks' time, he uses the same words, be alert and of sober mind, because the devil is is working around us. This time, um, this is the third time he uses it in chapter 4 here, how be sober, be alert, like be aware of what's going on so that he says you can pray. So the key idea here of this first bullet point is not so much being sober-minded and stuff as the idea that that we should be praying diligently or praying soberly, that we should be giving ourselves to prayer. And I, I can't help thinking as I was reading this, this particular part, and thinking this is Peter writing this. And you go back to the Gospels and the stories of when Peter hung out with Jesus and and learnt from him and was trained by Jesus over three years. I couldn't help but go back to a story that comes from the very end of the Gospels. The night that Jesus was betrayed after he's had the last supper with his followers. And they go out of the city of Jerusalem to a garden called Gethsemane. And Jesus knows he's about to be arrested He's about to be beaten, he's about to be tortured, he's about to be brutally whipped and he's about to suffer the most painful death anyone's ever conceived of in history called crucifixion. And he goes out to this garden because he wants to spend some time with his father in prayer. And he goes there with his 12 apostles and then he pulls out his closest friends, Peter, James and John, and the four of them just go a little further into the garden. And then he says these words to them in Mark chapter 4. He says to Peter and James and John, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said. Stay here and keep watch. And he goes further and he prays that incredible prayer, Father, take this cup from me, but not my will but yours be done. And the Gospels tell us Jesus is so overcome at this point with anxiety and grief. He's literally sweating blood out of his pores. And he goes back to these three closest friends as he is in the darkest hour of his life. He goes back to his three closest mates who he knows will be supporting him and caring for him and deeply concerned for him and thus sleeping. And he wakes them up and he says these words and he, he highlights Peter by his other name. He says, Simon, Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch with me for just one hour? And then he says these words, watch and pray so that you do not fall into temptation. That's what Peter's saying in this verse. The coming of Jesus is near, watch and pray. We should be deeply at work in prayer because the end is coming. Jesus is going to return. And we want to be faithful. We don't want to give in to temptation. But also we want people, friends, family members, work colleagues who don't know Jesus yet, to have repented and come into the kingdom of God as well before it's too late, and they stand before the judge. So we should be praying for them as well. And so this, there's this call here to urgently pray. Peter, uh, sorry, Paul will underline exactly the same kind of thing in Colossians 4. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for open doors for this message. That's what Peter's saying if we are uh, living good lives together as a church community, in light of the fact Jesus could come back at any minute, the first thing we should be doing then is praying. Praying fervently for ourselves that we won't fall into temptation, praying fervently for one another because this whole passage, this whole section in Peter is full of one another commands, praying that we'll have opportunities, as Paul said in Colossians 4, to share the message, to tell people, our friends and our family members about Jesus, and we should be doing this together. This was a huge focus for us last year as a church. What does it mean for us to be a praying church and I really do feel like this is becoming more and more who we are. But it is a, an incredible privilege to pray for each other. Now, I love getting to do this as a pastor. This week has been full of meetings for me. I've met a number of different people, some of whom are excited about serving God and looking for new opportunities, some people who are really battling in life. And to pause at the end of each, each appointment I've had this week and just pray for people is just such an amazing privilege But that isn't my privilege as a pastor. That's my privilege as a Christian. We all have that privilege. If you're parents, you have the privilege of praying with your children and over your children and for your children. If you're married, you have the privilege of praying with your spouse and for your spouse. If you're part of this church family, we have the privilege of praying for each other. That's why we have a weekly prayer focus together as a church. And what Peter's saying is that living good lives together, the first part of that is that we would be praying with each other and for each other that we would live good lives for him. Love this quote. I've used it before, but I love This is the best comment I've ever read on prayer from John Piper. Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church but it's not surprising that it malfunctions when it becomes a domestic intercom to call upstairs for more comforts in the den. I just think that's outstanding. And that's the sense of urgency, I think, that Peter's writing about. The end is near. Jesus could come back now, so let's be sober-minded, let's be alert, let's be watchful, and let us pray like crazy. That's what it means to live good lives together. Second thing he says, second bullet point then, in verse 8, is that we're to love consistently. We're to pray diligently, and then we're to love consistently. Verse 8 reads, above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Peter writes that little phrase at the beginning of verse 8, above all, because more than anything in the New Testament, love is to be the hallmark of of the Christian family. Love is to be the hallmark of of followers of Jesus. Jesus said this in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. The standard is, as I've loved you, you love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my followers, my disciples. If you love one another, three times, love one another, love one another, love one another. I love the way Paul fleshes this out in Romans 12. He says, love must be sincere or, or real, like the real thing. Love must be pure, so we're to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Love must be devoted to one another. It must be the, the real thing and, and, and serious. And it must be servant-hearted, we're to honour one another above ourselves. And that's what Peter's calling for here. Above all, he says, love one another deeply. The word, um, the word deeply there... It's not a bad translation, but I, I think a better way to translate that might have been more consistently or constantly. I think the, the emphasis that Peter's trying to bring about in that word he, he uses is, is loving each other over the long haul. Because to be honest, it's, it's kind of easy to hear that someone's struggling or or find out that someone's in pain. It, it's almost a little bit easy to just just pray with someone and say, God bless you, or maybe make them a quick meal and pop that around, or or to you know, send an encouraging text if you know someone's struggling. I mean, that, that's not too bad, not too hard. But to love someone over the long haul, to care for, for, for someone that we love over weeks or months can actually be really tough, really draining. It can, it can take a lot out of us. It can cost us a great deal. And I, but I think that's what Peter's calling for here. That we're to love one another over the long haul, love each other constantly, consistently, uh, through the years together. And we need this, don't we? In 1986, an American called Frank Reed was uh, captured where he was working in Lebanon. And he was held as a hostage there by one of the parties in Lebanon for five years, During that time, he was of imprisonment, he was often blindfolded, he was often beaten, and he was often left in solitary confinement. In fact, for months at a time, he would be desperately and utterly alone. Five years later, in 1990, he was released from captivity, and Time magazine interviewed him and asked him, what was the worst thing about your captivity? And this is what Frank Reed said. He said, the worst thing was that nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist without a single expression of caring from someone. He said, I learned one overriding fact. Caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you are truly alone. It's a powerful idea, isn't it? That's really at the heart of what what Peter's saying, that we're to love each other, we're to care. And we're to show that caring for each other through the way We love and we walk with each other and we help each other and we serve each other and we carry each other's burdens when times are tough. We are to love one another deeply or consistently. And one way that we are to do that, Peter says in the second half of this, of that verse, is that love will cover over a multitude of sins. He's probably paraphrasing here um, a couple of Proverbs. Proverbs 10. Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And then Proverbs 17, whoever would foster love covers over an offence. What he's talking about is that if we are to love one another in the church as as brothers and sisters in the family of God, then then we're to be forgiving to each other. We're to put up with each other. We're to just let the little things slide To love means we forgive easily and often. It means we're gracious with each other. Peter says the end is almost here. Imagine if Jesus came back and we were squabbling over stuff that just didn't matter. We're to just love each other. We're to pray diligently and we're to love one another consistently. Third bullet point then. He says, share generously. Look at verse uh, verse 9. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality was a huge deal in the early church. Um, It's because often when people were missionaries or apostles or or evangelists were traveling and going about sharing the message of Jesus, there wasn't really like a, a, a Best Western or a Millennium Hotel they could stay in. There were inns in certain key places around the Roman Empire, but they were not really places that you'd want to go as a follower of Jesus. Inns had a a reputation of being much more about that earlier description from the previous section around drunkenness and parties and carousing. And so when Christians were travelling through the Roman Empire, the apostles and evangelists, they would go and stay in the homes of people In fact, this was so prevalent and some Christian workers abused it that later, about 50 years after Peter, the rules were brought in in different areas of the Roman Empire from churches limiting how long you had to have a guest with you. Like when they'd filled their limit, you were allowed to boot them out quietly in the name of Jesus. But at this point, that's because some of them were abusing it, but at this point what Peter's emphasizing is this idea of hospitality. If you've got people coming through, open your home be generous. I know it's inconvenient, that's why he says without grumbling but he says welcome people in make people at home, share whatever it is that you've got with those in need. That's the idea um, Third John actually helps explain this really well. Um, John writes it was for the sake of the name, which you know Jesus obviously, that they went out receiving no help from the pagans. This is the visiting evangelists and apostles and so on. So we ought, therefore, to show hospitality to such people so that we may work together for the truth. It was a big deal in the early church. But notice, in Peter's letter, Peter's not necessarily only talking about those kind of traveling church leaders and speakers. Who does he say to show hospitality to? Have a look at the verse. It's it's to one another. It's to open homes to one another. And this not only meant for church services, because often around the Roman Empire, basically church happened in, in people's homes, so if you had a larger home, the expectation was you would show hospitality and open your home to people. Uh, but it was also just in the, in the normal run of life that, that, that Christians were to be people that opened their homes to each other and open their resources to each other, open their checkbooks to each other, and were just incredibly generous with one another and whatever the needs were at the time. And I hadn't even thought about this, but one of the commentators I was reading pulled a brilliant contrast out between this idea of being hospitable and the whole party atmosphere of that previous section. Um, Jim Sumra says this, hospitality is a hallmark of spiritual maturity. It's the opposite of reckless wild living. Instead of viewing people, he says, as objects to be used sexually and using raucous parties as opportunities to pursue selfish pleasure, hospitality, he says, is the intentional decision to take the initiative to invite people in to bless them. That's such a beautiful phrase. Hospitality is the intentional decision to take the initiative to invite people in to bless them. If there's one of these four bullet points... I think we struggle with today more than any. It's this one. And the reason that we struggle to share generously and practice hospitality is we are so flaming busy. Isn't it? We are so busy. We've got so much on our plates. We have so little margin in our lives. Our calendar is stacked. And then when your kids get a bit older, you start getting more stacked because you come am a taxi driver running them all around. Our lives are so frantically busy, we have actually, I think, by and large, lost the art of hospitality. And we're poorer for it. And in fact, busyness affects all of these. We probably don't pray enough because we're so busy. And we probably don't love each other practically and consistently as much as we could because we're so busy. And we don't practice hospitality as much because we're so busy. And I think this is a really sobering call for us to maybe look at our lives and look at the busyness and look at the scheduling, and look at the lack of margin that all of us have and go, how does this need to change if we're to actually do life together and live good lives together and be the church and family of God together? So pray diligently, love consistently, share generously and then serve faithfully is the fourth bullet point. Verses 10 and 11. He says, Each of you should use whatever gifts you've received to serve others, as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides. What Peter's talking about here is the the whole idea of spiritual gifts. Although personally, I don't actually like the term spiritual gifts. Um, Because... The word here for gifts is the word, Greek word charisma, which you might be familiar with, for some of you. It's actually built on the on the Greek word for, called charis. Charisma, charis. It's, they're kind of linked together. Charis is the word we translate grace. So I actually prefer we talked about grace gifts because that's what, what we're talking about. We're talking about the abilities and gifts that God has given every single one of us as a follower of Jesus that we can serve people with as a demonstration of his grace and in thanks for his grace, out of his grace. It's a grace gift. And it's the it's beautiful idea here is that all of us have been graced with gifts and abilities by God. And all of them are different. You notice that in verse 10. We're to be faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. In its multifaceted uh, forms is, is, is literally what he says. All of us are different. God's wired each of us differently. He's given all of us abilities and strengths and passions and personalities that make every single one of us unique, but all of us have got something to contribute. And so what Peter is saying is that is that all of us are meant to roll our sleeves up and meant to serve one another and serve this lost world uh, faithfully with whatever it is that God has given us. Um... Paul will talk right about it this way in Romans 12. Just as each of us has one body, talking about our physical bodies, with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. In other words, the fingers have a completely different function in your body than your spleen. I don't even know what your spleen does, but it's something different to fingers. And your kneecap does something very different than your lungs. You don't breathe with your kneecap, hopefully. Um, Every part of our bodies is different, he says. So in Christ we who are many... We form one body, and some of us are kneecaps, and some of us are spleens, and some of us are lungs, and some, like me, are mouths, and we're all different. But each of us belong to all the other. And together, as a body, we all work, we all have different gifts, he says. Notice this, according to the grace given us. We all have grace gifts according to the grace that God has given to us. There's a couple of things where I, I kind of function a little differently than many people on, on this this issue of grace gifts. Um, one of the things I personally think is I don't think there's a massive difference between your grace gifts, whatever they are, and your natural abilities. Uh, often many people draw this massive distinction between, you know, the gifts of the spirit and then, and then natural abilities. And I, and I look at that and go, you know what, the same spirit that redeemed me and gave me gifts is actually the spirit that created me in my mother's womb and, and, and who I am. And I actually think there's a lot, there's a lot closer parallel. I think often our gifts and and what others look at as more our natural abilities, I think they just all flow together. It's just how's God wired you and what are the abilities He's given you? And and, and trying to draw some foreign distinctions, I don't think that's actually necessarily biblical. Um, The other area where I'm a little different from many people is that I don't think there's an exhaustive list in the Bible of grace gifts. Um, You may have seen some. You may have done some kind of uh, gift inventory of the uh, 28 or 31 or 17 or however many, how they list the gifts that are listed in the Bible. But uh, personally, I don't think there's not an exhaustive list. And every time that the apostles would write about these in the New Testament, they just give a few examples. Personally, I think there's a whole heap of different gifts that aren't mentioned in the Bible. For example, this morning, we were led in worship by a fantastic group of musicians. And we are incredibly blessed as a church by the worship teams that serve us in worship on Sunday mornings. You won't find musical ability in any of the lists of grace gifts in the New Testament. I am utterly convinced it is a grace gift. Uh, It's often linked to a natural ability that you had when you were born because some people are born with the ability to sing beautifully. Others of us didn't get that gift from the Lord. Personally, I think this is grace gifts at work and I think it's a gorgeous thing. And I think there are all kinds of gifts and abilities that God has given to each of us. Some are mentioned in the Bible and I think some are not. And, and all that the writers of scripture are doing when they tell us about gifts are saying, however God's made you, however God's wired you, whatever he's gifted you with, serve him. Use it well. That's what he says in, in verse 11. Peter boils it all down to, to two types of gifts. He says, those of you who speak and those of you who serve. In other words, those of you who use your mouth and those of you who use your, your hands. Now, speaking doesn't just mean people like me. It can be those who lead small groups. It can be those who teach children. It can be those who uh, say words of encouragement. It can be those who, who write words of encouragement. The, the, the speaking idea, using our words to, to, to grow and serve people, can be multifaceted, as can serving. So he's just taking like the two broadest possible categories, and he's simply saying, whatever you've got, however God's wired you and gifted you, serve one another, serve a lost world. The coolest example, I think, of this whole idea is going to happen for us next weekend. If you're watching this in Hastings a few weeks behind us or watching this on the internet, um, it will already happen, have happened by the time you read this. But for us here at Botany, uh, next week we do our annual community project. And uh, that's a weekend, if you haven't been part of that before, where we don't do church services on a Sunday morning. We do church all day Saturday and Sunday. And we donate a weekend to a local school. In this case, it's going to be this school, How can Intermediate, next weekend. And we get stuck in here and we just serve. And we work and we paint and we build and we garden and we throw out rubbish and we bake delicious items. That is a grace gift of God, by the way. If you can bake, we thank the Lord for you. We look after kids so that others can serve. The Community Project is a beautiful example of serving faithfully. And one of the things I love and have loved through the years about the, the community project is we have fantastic team leaders there who are incredibly gifted practically. It's a grace gift. And we see builders leading a construction team and using the gifts and abilities of building that God has given them to honour him and to serve our community. I think it's It's, it's fantastic. That the community project is a fabulous way to live out all of this. Serving faithfully with the gifts and abilities God has given us. Sharing generously of our time and our baking and uh, and all that kind of good stuff. Um, loving consistently in the way we do it. More often than not, the feedback we get from schools is both, wow, look at all the stuff you've achieved, but also, man, we came down to help. We can't believe the amazing atmosphere that your church has and the way people care for each other and encourage each other, the atmosphere was amazing. And it's a fantastic opportunity to pray, which we're going to do later in this service together. But this is what church is meant to be. Next week we get to live that out in just another way. But this is what it's meant to be 24-7-52, 365. This is what life is meant to be for the church. Pray, love, share, serve. And then Peter concludes with the why. Why do we do that? Look at the second half of verse 11. Let me read the whole of verse 11 to put it in context. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. Do it well. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength God provides. Do it well. Here it is. So that in all things... God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That's the conclusion. The church is to be the church. We're to pray with and for each other. We're to love consistently over the long haul, forgiving each other and putting up with each other. We're to share generously and practice hospitality. We're to serve faithfully with the gifts and abilities he's given so that God is glorified. And all Peter's doing as he comes to the end of this big section in the middle of his letter is he's cycling back to the very start of this section where he was talking about negatively abstaining from sinful desires and positively living such good lives that people would see your good deeds and what? And glorify God. And he's just coming back to the same basic idea. When we live good lives, God is glorified. So let's live good lives, not just by ourselves in our own little journey, in our own little world, but let's live good lives together. Let's do that together. That's what it means to be a family. Let's pray and love and share and serve so that God is glorified. And you'll notice, by the way, the way I've framed it up here on the slide, to him is the glory. Glory. Almost all our English translations do this final doxology bit, to him be the glory and the power. And they use the word be so that it sounds like it's a, it's a wish, it's a hope, it's our, it's our dream that, that the glory would be his. Actually, what it literally says is the glory is his. It's not a wish, it's a fact. The glory and the power is his. So let's live in light of that in a way that draws people's attention to that. Almost 15 years ago, this expression of the church launched. Botany life began uh, almost 15 years ago in Riverina School. We had our first services done uh, at the edge of Pakaranga. The very first Sunday we started, our very first public church services, the tiny little gathering of us. I preached uh, the opening sermon from a similar doxology as this, similar kind of passage um, in the middle of the, the book of Ephesians, which is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote. Ephesians 3 reads like this Now to Him, which is God, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The reason I preach that, this is one of my favorite parts of the Bible. I love the description of God. He is the one who does immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine. I love the, the sense of promise here, according to his power that is at work within us by his spirit. But most of all I love the next line. To him be glory in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. But that's not what he said. He said to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. The dream of the, of the scriptures is that God is glorified in the church when his people really are the church when we pray and love and share and serve, God is glorified. And the potential is not only does Jesus bring God glory, but we bring God glory when we serve and love and pray together. And I know some of you have been hurt by the church Some of you carry deep wounds because of the way churches have treated you. Some of you have seen church leaders fail and hurt you. Some of you have been part of churches that have split and broken apart. Some of you have been part of churches that have failed to hold on to the the truth of God's word. Some of you have been deeply disappointed, almost pushed out of the race because of the the sin and the dysfunction of the church. And yet, the church is still the bride. And Jesus still passionately loves it. And God is still glorified in the church. Not because we're perfect, not because we always get it right. But when we kind of get there, when we work to just pray more and love more and serve more and share more. There's glory there. There's beauty there. There's life there. We're meant to live good lives together because living good lives is not a solo sport. It's a team game. That's why today here at the botany service at least. You're sitting in a little group. Some of you may know each other in that circle really well. Others of you may have had to introduce yourselves or you haven't even done that yet and now you can look awkwardly across the circle at someone you don't know and smile. But here's what we want to do because we've done the seating like this today as a reminder to us that this is church. But we can't actually... Pray and serve and love. Just sitting in rows on a Sunday. We need to circle up. We need to get small. We need to relationally connect like this. And that's why small groups are at the heart and soul of our church. And if you're not in a community group, we raise this frequently through the years. If you're not in a group, that's the beauty of a group. You get to be in a cluster of people where you can pray for each other and for lost friends. You can love each other and know what's going on in one another's lives. You can uh, share together, open homes to each other, taking meals together, practicing hospitality, and you can serve each other. You can practically help one another. You can speak words of life to each other. And so if you're not in a community group, then I'd really encourage you to think that through. We've got Brochures out on the back table there, out in the foyer. If you want to grab those, you can come and chat to one of us on staff. But what we also want to do is celebrate the the beauty and diversity of the church today. So the band is going to come up um, now, and they're going to use their grace gifts of music again. Then lead us in a couple of songs to prepare our hearts for communion, because we have communion elements down here. Um, But we're going to do communion very differently today. We're going to celebrate communion in the little clusters that you are sitting with. So the band is going to lead us in two songs that just help us to focus on the cross and what Jesus has done for us. During the songs, I'm going to ask if one person from each group would just come to the front and pick up one of these baskets.